The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. It's the end of an era for America's venerable conglomerate, General Electric, plus the latest from the COP26 climate shindig in Scotland. Stay tuned. Welcome to The Views Room. I'm Rob Cox, the editor of Breaking Views, financial commentary arm of Reuters News. I'm coming to you from Zurich after a week spent in Glasgow at the UN Climate Conference. More on that later. First, I talked to John Foley, our US editor, about General Electric's decision to break into three companies. It's not a surprising move. Larry Culp, the CEO, has been nudging the company towards some sort of dismantling since taking over three years ago. But for longtime GE watchers, it's certainly the end of an era. For decades, GE managers like Jack Welch and Jeff Immelt argued that their culture, discipline, and Six Sigma ways allowed the company's disparate businesses to create more value for shareholders than if they were run separately. In reality, that hubris led the company to make a lot of dumb decisions, which are now being unwound. After that, me and George Hay, who's still in Scotland at the COP, chew over some of the lessons learned from the second week of the climate conference. In general, the first week was a bit more positive than the second has been thus far in getting the world closer to keeping global warming to no more than one and a half degrees Celsius. Give a listen. John, so you wrote about what many people would describe as the end of an era, the breakup of General Electric, the conglomerate, into three component parts. As you and I know, this has been a long time coming, but they finally announced it. So uh, what's your sense of, of how we should read this? Well, Rob, I think it's understandable that people think about this as the end of an era because GE is nearly 120 years old. But actually, the, the era that we're talking about ended ages ago. Right. So like, GE G already is not the giant sprawling conglomerate that was, you know, this was once the biggest company in America, in the world, in fact, in, in, in about 2000. It was like the Apple of the then stock market. It made toasters. It made TV sitcoms. You know, it had it offered credit cards. Like now it's actually quite a simple business. It's got these divisions that make jet engines, power turbines and renewable energy, healthcare scanners, things like MRI machines. And it's already fairly neatly packaged together. So what's happening now is that Larry Culp, the CEO of about three years, is going to, over time, split those three bits apart. But it's really, I mean, it's, it's actually unremarkable in the sense that these businesses are already quite neatly packaged and they don't really have very much in common. And most of the sort of random bits and bobs that GE used to do have already been scrubbed away. No, I mean, they no longer have NBC, the, as you say, the maker of Seinfeld and other hit so television programs. They no longer have the appliance business. They sold that to hire in China, which made the toasters and has, quote unquote, brought good things to life, as it used to be advertised. Even lighting, right? Which, if you go back to Thomas Edison, you know, when Edison created the, the light bulb and was essentially the progenitor of, of General Electric, as it was known. Now, these three businesses, is this a good thing for stockholders, though? I mean, will you get more value by taking them apart than you had keeping them together? In theory, yes, you will. So we did what a lot of analysts would do in this situation and, and try and value the different bits and think if these were trading in the market as standalone companies, what would they be worth? And just taking, basically just taking the aviation business and the healthcare business, so ignoring the power side, which isn't really making any profit at the moment, just valuing those on a similar way that we'd value their peers, like Honeywell, which also makes you know engine parts, or Siemens Healthineers, which makes healthcare equipment, already those account for all of GE's current value and more. So in other words, if you break it up, it should be worth more. But there are a couple of buts here. One is that it's going to take a while for them to break this up. They're not even going to start until 2023. 
and G has a habit of saying it's going to do things and then not doing them. So there may be a bit of uh, scepticism about how these plans will come to be reality, and that's reflected in the fact that the shares didn't really move. The other but is that there are still a few little kind of financial oddities buried um, at the back of the wardrobe at GE, and those are yeah, still Yeah, I'm there. curious about that. I mean, things like they had the, the long-term the, the liability insurance or health insurance, it was health liability. What is it? What was that one? It was like a... So, black hole that, of some sort it was kind of a black hole it was this idea that you're you insure people and then when they need old age care you pay their bills and the problem with this is that it's quite an innovative product and no one really knows how long people are going to live and how much it's going to cost to look after them so ge has a few times had to um revise its expectations and it took a big six billion dollar loss just before culp arrived on those policies now right now they seem to be kind of okay they seem to be more or less fully funded but there is going to be a, a big change to the way that they're forced to account for these that kicks in at the beginning of 2023 and the company itself says that this may have a significant impact so there's still room for those bits to to throw out the odd unpleasant surprise that might be why they're not even going to start spinning off the healthcare business which is the first step of this until 2023 because by then we'll know a bit more about what some of these financial questions by are then they'll have quantified them or even who knows maybe even offloaded bit. it to somebody right uh, ultimately, and, exactly exactly you could also see them offloaded but ultimately you won't know how much it costs to look after these old people and, until you actually are paying their healthcare bill and see how long they live right right and then and and then you also have the, the rump company the one that larry culp will stick around to run of course is the is the engines business right yeah and do you and have it, a view about what you know, or not just the engines business. So, well, think about the power business, or think about that the healthcare uh, diagnostics or business. Um, do you think these things are going to go off and do their own deals, a little like they did a few years back, where they took their oil and gas services and equipment business and merged it with another company? I mean, you think that's what really what's going to happen here? They, I think they could. They certainly could, and and you you can't do it as easily without splitting the business up. So certainly once you've separated these parts, then you can start thinking, well, okay, what would be a good match for these? Like we said yesterday, and this is slightly cheeky because it's definitely not on the agenda at the moment, that a, a deal between Honeywell and GE Aviation, which was intended to happen in about the yeah, year turn of the century. Yeah, but it was blocked by regulators because at the time GE also had a huge aircraft leasing business that they didn't like going into the mix. And now GE doesn't have that. So theory, well, yeah, I mean, the argument was that they had the dominating portfolio effect, right? So that was, I think, European Union regulators or antitrust yeah. authorities said, ah, well, if you do that, the problem is, you know, you're going to basically be able to, well, well, you might not have dominance in this specific business, you're going to use all of your adjacent businesses to put the squeeze on vendors, suppliers, and customers. Kind of, yeah. And they were saying that because you, you you control leasing, you might say, well, you can only lease our planes if you also have the Honeywell bits as right. well as the GE bits. So, but these are things that, like, you know, these are things that could potentially come back into view. The thing is that Larry Culp, who is going to run the aviation business, is not really a deal. He's not known as a deal maker. He has sold some some big stuff at GE and he's trimmed it down. But his focus is on making what he's got much more efficient. He's obsessed with this concept of lean manufacturing. So at the moment, he's not talking about doing transformational deals. But these things all become possible once you've separated GE into its component parts. Okay. And did you? Uh, what's your sense of Larry Culp? He is, says he's sticking around and he's going to have his finger in, in a few of these pies. Is that right? 
Yeah, I mean, he's only been around for three years, so it's, it's not like he's a long-serving CEO. He has a very generous bonus package, which is geared to G GE's share price. And we'll have to see what how that is tinkered with to reflect the fact that it's going to be broken up. Um, but he's certainly got lots of incentives to stick around. He's also good. I mean, he's made GE much more efficient and you're starting to see that in the amount of cash that it's throwing off. Obviously, they need their customers to come back, which because of COVID has been a problem. Planes just aren't taking off the way they used to, which means the jet engines aren't you know, being worn and torn the way they used to and replaced. But, um, but it, I certainly don't think shareholders have any complaints with him. And compared with his predecessors, people like John Flannery and Jack Welsh and Jeff Immelt, he is exemplary. Well, I mean, that is a pretty low base, but... Uh... <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, John. We'll keep an eye on this. We've got a few more years where, in which the General Electric uh, will still be a conglomerate. And, and as you say, they often say more than they actually do, so it might be forever. But thanks for that. George, I'm so sorry to have left you in Glasgow, Scotland. Uh, <laughs> we had a great week together, the first week of COP26. Uh, I was there a couple of days. You're you're there for the long haul this week. What's 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 the sort of latest? What are you? We've got a couple more days. Uh, joint commun communiques meant to be happening. There's a few other things that have popped up since we last spoke. Um, yeah. What is what is sort of the big overarching message that you're getting from it so far? Well, so basically, now we're getting into the end game of what they're actually going to decide at COP, and so the actual draft kind of communication is out, which is like a, a a draft of what they would actually finally agree and it's come out um you know, in the middle of the week um and uh so the interesting thing is you know the backdrop uh for most of the last week a week and a half or so has just been um oh the you know this is going to be this is going to be a massive failure you know cops the the public pledges made by the countries um aren't going to be very good and we're you know not going to get anywhere in terms of um uh, where we need to be in terms of decarbonisation. So, um, but actually, what's in this draft proposal is is relatively robust because um, uh, there's a there's a specific wording where the governments in this draft proposal are saying they would decide to basically try and kind of speed up their. It's basically a way of kind of trying to get the laggards to go quicker on um, decarbonisation pledges. And so if that was to stay in the final document, um, that would be quite a tough thing. And all the um, governments that are perceived to have been kind of rather slow coach on uh, on their pledges would, would have to buck their ideas up. Now, the big question is, will it stay in? And we don't know that yet. So. OK, well, that we'll, we'll know by next week when we have this podcast. Well, we'll, <laughs> well, well but, but what, yeah. some of the other things that have been coming up is, you know, you and I talked about and written about now over the last week is the way that private sector pledges. So many companies, many industries have yep. made pretty binding commitments that um, that in, that are that have been that the calculations that the IEA and others are using to determine whether or not they reach the 1.5 degree mark, they, they seem to be quite robust yet and even more robust, frankly, than than member countries, than, than yeah, governments that, are coming that's, through. That's the, whole, that's the whole point. So like the big story from last week was this uh, Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, which is this group of pretty much all the big Western banks who are all at least nominally com committed to um, net zero and limiting uh, temperatures to 1.5, temperature increases to 1.5 degrees over pre-industrial levels. That was a quite a big thing that they managed to agree. I mean, obviously, 
um, God knows whether uh, they're actually going to stick to it. But uh, getting them in the tent was a good was a good kind of coup, really. And um, but in the same way as the public sector pledges may be getting, uh, or the, the public sector kind of news may be getting more positive, hopefully. Uh, what we've seen the last couple of days is um, some of the private sector pledges getting a bit less good. <laughs> so right. the so the specific one I, I have in mind is the the car makers. They were asked. So basically, their equivalent of being the, the way that they get on the 1.5 degree pathway, uh, broadly speaking, is for them to commit to phase out new sales of kind of, uh, of petrol powered cars um, by the middle of next decade. Um, and the reason for that, that 2035 level, is because usually the, it takes about 10, 15 years for the fleet of cars to turn over. So that would get you to, if you replace all those petrol cars with electric vehicles by 2050, then you'd be in a, in a good place because you should be kind of pretty much decarbonizing the entire car fleet, which would be great. So it's a funny one, this this um, this particular example, because again, and there's an interesting parallel with the GFAN stuff with the banks last week, because... The, that was a situation where the bank, I didn't necessarily think the banks would be able to do that, to sign up for that pledge. And they did. And there's a big question about how they're going to do it. But with, with the with the cars, it's a, car makers, it's a bit more like, well, they look like they're already well on the path to achieving something similar to a 2035 pledge. But a lot of them just didn't sign up. So right. VW right. didn't sign up, BMW didn't sign up, uh, a number of other ones. And I think the way I've looked at it is just, I mean, it's quite difficult to, I think it, I think it comes down to, it kind of exemplifies the problem with trying to get private players on board. It's a bit kind of like herding cats because they all have different business strategies and all starting off at different places. So there are some, I think one, one possible reason why VW didn't sign up is because they have a lot of their business in China and China didn't sign up. China has a, only a 2060 net zero pledge. So there's a kind of element whereby perhaps VW doesn't want to go, you know, any faster than its growth market. But it's a bit of a downer, basically, in the end, if you're because you 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 would have thought, uh, you know, VW has already kind of uh, made it quite clear that EVs are the future, and it's trying to, you know, it's 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 a real it's a key growth area. So you would have thought they would be kind of it would be preaching to the converted. But anyway, for whatever reason, they they haven't signed up, and um, that's a bit of a downer. So that's sort of a it's an interesting counterpoint to the to the, the the issue around okay well private just industry just going to move on we're going to go to net zero we're going to do this exactly. even if governments slow are, are dragging their feet but the problem is if you're Volkswagen and you're selling I don't know what is you know the lar- it's probably their largest single market in terms of vehicle sales is that right it's it's, it's getting there it's getting. getting there so you don't want to necessarily also be pissing off the powers that be with your own commitments. Exactly. So there's a, there's a kind of slight political element to it too. Of course, they're not alone. You, you point out that Toyota is also yeah, in yeah. that mix. Yeah, BMW, BMW is just highly dependent on, upon yeah. sales in China. Yeah, but um, it's, you know, that I've also talked to people who say, well, look, ultimately, and this is, as, as I said, as another layer of complexity, ultimately it doesn't really matter if uh, in this sector if there aren't, if, if people don't sign up to pledges because they, they very much think this is happening anyway. They think that uh, they think China is on board for it. Uh, VW is on board for it. Or everyone who needs to be on board is on board. It's just they don't necessarily, there's a herding cats thing. They don't necessarily want to be kind of um, um, confined or straitjacketed 
in this particular pledge. So, you know, for whatever reason, they decided to go against it. Anyway, so, but I, but I suppose what it does do is, is it kind of throws all the emphasis even more so on the public sector that they've got to kind of do something positive and keep this kind of relatively tough wording in their draft document um, into the final document. Uh, otherwise, we will have a, we will be back in the kind of doom and gloom, bad cop scenario. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but but I mean, obviously, we we've obviously another something you've been writing this week is is to do with uh, uh, something that may further <laughs> exacerbate the bad cop scenario or the bad <laughs> post cop scenario, which is what happens in 2024, right? Right. Well, yeah, the, you're referring to the column I wrote about Donald Trump's sort of the whiff of Donald Trump redux that that is permeating the air of the Belly top 26. Yeah. Well, it's. I mean, yeah, no, the, the, the point is, as you and I know, having talked to lots of people out there, is that, that there's a question. So governments are asking themselves, well, OK, John Kerry's here, uh, Joe Biden's here, Barack Obama, the former president, gave a very uh, uh, keynote speech on, mon on Monday, uh, all saying that America's here, American leadership is front and center with climate reduction goals, the, or, or emissions uh, reduction goals. However, everyone's asking, in private to Kerry and his team, for instance. Okay, well, you say that, but um, I just saw what happened in the United States for in the last four years when yeah. when Donald Trump pulled out of the Paris Agreement that was reached in 2015. And not only that, he like he doubled down on hydrocarbons. If you remember right. back in Katowice, I think Poland, the last the 2018 COP, he basically tried to stage sort of a, a sideline event in you know pro coal. Which is, yeah. which was, it was sort of, it, it was, it's what he does with. Do you think he'd left, be able to right? do that? In, do you think he'd be able to do that in 2025? In 2025, where is the 20? Yeah, so I think there is a possibility. Whatever the problem the is. Yeah. Yes. So, so there's a real concern. All the U.S. negotiators, as it were, diplomats are having to kind of reassure all of their counterparties, whether it's the Indonesians, the Vietnamese, the Indians, whatever, who say, look, no, 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 this, this. Uh, this, this, this already, this is baked in. We're not going to be able to go backwards. And I think there is some truth to that. I mean, as you and I know, having speak, spoken to lots of executives and industry people, they are just moving on with it. I talked to Alan Jope, who's the CEO of Unilever, and asked mm -hmm. him about this. He said, look, you know, a, a world in which, which is underwater or on fire is just freaking bad for, for Unilever, right? Yeah. So Strange. we are, they're all on board. I think you find that, I mean, as you wrote, there is this question about responsible reduction. Is that what it is? Responsible? Responsible retirement of retirement. fossil fuels, which is just sounds like a euphemism. What is a euphemism for just not doing it very quickly? For foot dragging, basically. Um, yeah, so, yeah. so there's a lot of there's a lot of kind of concern about Trump getting in and a need to kind of, if you're a corporate player, like hedge yourself so that you might be able to pivot a little bit back if he gets in but it's it's not even it's not even just about trump it's also just everyone's focused on energy security because of various energy crises around the world the thing that people keep on pointing to is just we're actually doing the right amount of oil and gas in investment for net zero but the trouble is we're doing about a third or less than a third of the uh, renewable investment that, that we need to do to fill to, to replace the oil and gas and what we and what we would need to actually power the world and keep the lights on. So basically that is another way of saying you just need to do a load, load more renewable investment that currently isn't being done. And 
if we're not going to do that, then we need to to have some kind of plan B. Otherwise, and that's and that's why this responsible retirement. Exactly, and that's but but I I think in general the big picture is that I don't I think that the 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 idea is there's a certain urgency to getting this done, as if the extinction of the species weren't enough. Which is look in a couple of years time we could have a shift in the U.S. government. You could have uh, some of the some of the funds at least dissipate that that might be committed today, but. You're going forward. The climate change is not a political issue, and it, it is. It and Donald Trump, even Donald Trump, probably should he be president again, first president to have a you know two non-consecutive terms in office after which president? That's a trivia question. Yeah, well, that's yeah. Grover Cleveland. But but it, it is. Uh, it, so I think that that was what I wrote about, and it just seemed to be out there. A lot of people talking about it. But there is I, – I, someone asked me, well, what's your probability do you give to Trump being elected? And at this point, not least because of the, the, you know, the, the way that the Republicans are doing a great job of making inflation and higher gas prices stick on President Biden, uh, yeah. witnessed, uh, of course, with the governor's mansion shifting last week in Virginia and other places, I would still say that I, I think it's maybe 30 percent. I don't think it's like a foregone conclusion. However, yeah. I'm not sure that that's any better than Do- than than. Joseph Joe Biden's uh, re-election chances, which means who knows? It's all up in the air. But but anyway, let's come back to this next week. Yeah, we'll at least have a, a clear idea of what's been agreed uh, mm. and what the communique looks like. But good luck up there, and uh, enjoy another couple of days of haggis for breakfast. I will definitely do that. Thanks, Thank George. That's our show for this week. Thanks to our producers, Sharon Lamb and Katrina Hamlin in Hong Kong, and to you, dear listener, for tuning in. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you go to get your podcast fixes. And check us out every day at breakingviews.com. Thank you.